0: We'd like to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Anchor.
1: Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer.
0: Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast and many more.
1: You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership.
0: It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place.
1: So download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Now, let's get to the show.
2: What's the best way to reduce? Eat plenty or starve yourself?
1: 30 pounds in just 18 weeks, Jenny Craig totally worked. I love to eat,
2: but overeating made it impossible to lose weight.
1: That my body right. wants bread, and I'm going to give my body what it wants. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I lost my
0: body Medical studies prove that overeating, and overeating is the number one reasonable just weight gain. If you, you need to be weight, you'll see that Bring your weight down. i losing weight. I'm Welcome to Fad Camp, a podcast that throws a comedy eye over our societal obsession of diets. Now, a little disclaimer we are not health experts, but we are fad diet connoisseurs. I'm your host, comedian Grace Mulvey.
1: And I'm your co host, Connor Dowling.
0: Welcome to Fad Camp.
1: So Grace, we have a really exciting guest to welcome on. She's waiting in the wings. I know we're both very excited. Um, So I'm just going to give a little introduction here. Uh, It is our distinct honour to welcome our guest today. She is an anti-diet registered dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counsellor, certified eating disorders dietitian and journalist. Through her work, She specializes in helping people make peace with food and reclaim the time and energy they've lost to the life thief that is diet culture. She's the host of the popular Food Psych podcast and the author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Wellbeing and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which came out in 2019. And I can honestly say this book changed everything for myself and Grace and practically inspired this entire podcast you're listening to right now. So... Without further ado, Christy Harrison, welcome to Fad Camp.
2: Oh, thank Woo! you so much. This is <laughs> such a pleasure. It's so good to hear that I inspired this podcast. It's it's such a I'm so glad it's out there in the world. So thank you. <laughs>
0: Woo! Oh my God, Christy, I'm so excited. Sorry, I even wooed over you talking. Sorry. <laughs> That's how excited we are to have you. When Connor told me that you were coming on the podcast, I nearly died. So um, just a quick intro, f- Christy, for you, for to us. And um, we thought like as a shorthand of letting you know our history uh, with diet culture, we will introduce ourselves by mentioning just some of the fad diets we've been conned by in mm. the past. Okay, so... I'm Grace Mulvey, a former juicer, weight watcher, f- cross-fitter and special K-dieter.
1: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Connor Daling. I am a former potato diet faster. I've um, dipped my toe in all sorts of types of fasting, water fasting, juicing, slow carb diet, uh, lots of protein, done all of that stuff and i've injured myself in pretty much every exercise situation you can think of so we between us we are very well equipped to uh dig into all everything fad diets and diet culture
2: yeah <laughs> it sounds like it i've never even heard of the potato diet that's wild oh
1: well yeah you gotta listen very irish Irish. there there was a situation where i was in the city on a night out with some friends with uh some potatoes in a ziploc bag in my pocket which grace uh, i know remembers very fondly <laughs> wow.
0: one of my favorite stories that that's how into diet culture you were that you brought a potato into town <laughs> on a night out anyway listen that, that just shows you and like christy's book will back up that kind of like the lunacy that uh the diet culture brings us into mm-hmm. um christy just for our first question to get uh get started because we're so we want to just go the book is just so amazing and there's so much we could cover but obviously we won't get a chance to in one interview so Just to let you know, right, so in Ireland, we are very much in the infancy when it comes to our knowledge, kind of of what diet culture is. Um, We're not particularly well versed in intuitive eating or health at every size. I hadn't heard that term before your book. Mm -hmm. So we want to kind of get started with the questions at a real beginner level. So you are an anti-diet dietitian. Now, to me, that sounds like you're a sort of anti-magic magician. (laughs) So I'm going to need you to explain what does an anti-dietitian mean and how what was your journey to kind of become one, really?
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely did not start out here. Um, and I say anti-diet dietitian. I think, to sort of highlight that, yeah, the word diet's in the name of the profession and how unfortunate is that. But actually, you know, there are those of us out there... In the dietetics profession, in the nutrition field, that are not going to put you on a diet or buy into diet culture, and so you know that I try to sort of highlight that by saying anti diet dietitian. Um, but my journey was really winding, like many people's are. I think I started my career as a journalist in 2003, and at the time, I was also super disordered with food. Like I had managed to actually get to age 20 without any issues with food and sort of maintaining the intuitive eating that we're all born with, you know, that sort of innate connection to food, to hunger and fullness and pleasure and satisfaction. And thankfully, you know, I think because of a lot of privilege, nobody interfered in my relationship with food it was thin enough for nobody to comment on my size and tell me to lose weight and put me on a diet. My family had enough food all the time. We were never food insecure. And so I think those things combined to sort of insulate me from diet culture up until the age of 20. But what happened then was that I went to Paris to study abroad and was given a different birth control pill because my doctor could like load me up on free samples to take for the whole year that I was going to be away. And so I gained a little bit of weight pretty rapidly from the switching pills and suddenly everything that I had always heard about dieting and weight loss and you know all of the things all the diet culture things that had kind of colonized my brain just came rushing to the fore and it was like oh you need this here's the thing now you're going to lose weight right so you know that was starting around age 20 so by the time I was you know 22 23 just starting my career in journalism I was in it with diet culture I was you know, really disordered with food. I think I would have met the criteria for an eating disorder at various points in there and, you know, sort of went back and forth from really, really super restrictive and disordered and like restrict binge cycling constantly to maybe slightly less restrictive and, you know, a little bit more open, but still doing very weird things with food, went in and out of the gluten-free diet. You know, again, this was like 2003 before it was really a trend, but... In some small way, I think I helped make it a trend as a journalist by covering it and putting myself on the gluten-free diet and sort of reporting on how I felt. And um, and so I, you know, did that. I was a full-time journalist in magazines and, you know, especially food magazines and covering food and nutrition for six or seven years. And I slowly through that process started to get better because, the last magazine I worked for for full time was Gourmet, which was very, you know, all about pleasure and satisfaction in food. And they did also cover like sustainability and sort of the Michael Pollan side of food, which is what attracted me to that magazine, because I could like do my food politics thing there. But also I was exposed to a lot of people who had really pleasurable relationships with food. And it was never 100%. You know, I think everybody had their their little moments of diet culture, looking back and thinking about these editors that I super admired and thought were had these great relationships with food. And I'm like, oh yeah, but they said that one little thing that in retrospect now, I'm like, oh, diet culture touched them too. Um, but nevertheless, I think it helped me, you know, being around people with relatively positive relationships with food, I think helped me heal to some extent. Um, and so by the time that magazine closed, they actually folded the magazine in 2009. And I had kind of heard rumblings that that was going to be coming and so decided to go back to school um, to get my master's in public health nutrition and to become a registered dietitian. And the goal at the time was to, you know, quote unquote, help end the obesity epidemic. And I cringe at that now because I now know how harmful and damaging that even that sort of rhetoric around a so-called obesity epidemic is, even the word obesity is stigmatizing. Um, But at the time I was really bought in. At the time I really was, you know, a part of diet culture and sort of specifically this part of diet culture that I now call the wellness diet, which really comes out of Michael Pollan and Marion Nestle and, you know, this idea of like whole foods and plant-based and Um, you know, not eating a lot of processed foods and sort of demonizing processed foods and demonizing higher weights and sort of connecting the two, the food landscape, the food environment as, you know, making people fat, this idea that I think still persists very much to this day in food policy or nutrition policy, rather. Um, And so, you know, I was really bought in, right? But then I went back to school to become a dietitian. And at the same time, because I did not have enough to do already in graduate school and full-time or part-time work, because I was still working as well, I also decided that I was going to write a book. And uh, the first book idea that I had was a cultural history of emotional eating. That's the... You know, what actually ended up becoming sort of the basis of anti-diet because it introduced me to all these concepts, you know, intuitive eating, uh, the fact that diets lead to binging, that, you know, restriction leads to binging. Mm -hmm. I had never really understood that before and I thought of myself as an emotional eater, but I learned in researching that book that actually no, you know, so-called emotional eating is really driven by dieting and binging. And, um, so, you know, I, I did all this research, I discovered the book intuitive eating, and I think that's what really helped me heal my relationship with food for real and move out of the disordered eating. And of course that was in conjunction with regular psychotherapy for years, which is definitely a privilege, um, to be able to afford that. And so with all that, I, I ended up healing my own relationship with food and then started specializing in eating disorders. And that's when I really, uh, sort of, locked into the idea that, oh, intuitive eating and health at every size are actually considered best practices for treating eating disorders. And, you know, how important would that be to, to expand that to everyone? Because everyone has some level of disordered eating, you know? And so um, I kind of slowly over the course of, you know, five or 10 years um, kind of turned from you know, being a proponent of the so-called obesity epidemic and ending it and stuff like that to um, being anti-diet and fully rooted in the health at every size movement.
0: God, that's such an amazing journey, Christy. Like such, even the fact that you started off as a person who didn't have, kind of wasn't engulfed in that kind of diet culture mentality up until the age of 20, which is almost like I feel unheard of for a a woman in the Western Mm -hmm. world to get (laughs) to that age and then to have this journey. Also, I have to say. Of all the countries to gain weight, I mean, France isn't the place to do it, but um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it really is not the culture that's going to that's going to help. No, um, certainly. I not. suppose one thing I just want to jump on, because I think a few people who be our listeners might be listening to this. Um, when you say disordered eating, what exactly do you mean by disordered eating?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question. So disordered eating is sort of a spectrum. Right. And I see it as, you know, intuitive eating is kind of one End of the spectrum where there's no disordered eating, or like, you know, not that anybody's a fully perfect intuitive eater in this culture, right? But you can get back to that innate relationship with food that we're all born with. Or there are some people like me who, you know, could have gone past 20. And I know a few people now who've been intuitive eaters their entire lives, you know, who've never been touched by diet culture really or eaten in a disordered way. And then there's this whole spectrum that goes to the other end of full-blown eating disorder, like really, really intense disordered behaviors. And then there's everything in between, which is, you know, some gradation of disordered eating. And what I mean by disordered eating is – Uh, you know, basically eating disorder behaviors that may or may not happen frequently enough or consistently enough to meet the full criteria for an eating disorder, but that are nevertheless really harmful to people's well-being, you know, mental and physical health. So that can be things like restriction, fasting, right? Actually, the first reference I've ever seen, scientific reference to the term intermittent fasting was describing the behaviors of someone with an eating disorder from like a 1996 scientific paper. Yeah, so that's food for thought, right? um you know over exercise um bulimia right whether it's you know vomiting or laxative abuse or things like that or over exercise to try to compensate for what you've eaten um or even you know really exercising to try to compensate for what you've eaten in the first place, one could say, and I do say, is a disorder behavior, right? Sort of this um, compensatory thinking around food and exercise. Um, You know, what else? Binge eating, right, which usually happens in response to restrictive eating. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different behaviors that can, you know, that are disordered eating, that are not intuitive eating, that are not kind of what your body... um, Is intended to do, right? What we're we're sort of programmed to be able to do in terms of our relationship with food. Um, And so a lot of people, you know, as I talk about in the book, there's a a study from 2008 showing that 75% of American women between the ages of 25 and 45 have some form of disordered eating, um, of Mm -hmm. which 10% actually have, like, meet the criteria for a full-blown eating disorder, even though far fewer are actually diagnosed. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a pretty good Litmus test, right? That's a, I think that's fairly generalizable from what I've seen. You know, I would say even perhaps a higher percentage of American women that I know have had some form of disordered eating, right? Struggled in their relationship with food and their bodies. And then transgender people, we know, are actually at even higher risk. Than cisgender people of having disordered eating. And even men, cisgender men are, you know, increasingly exposed to these pressures to shrink their bodies and look a certain way. And, you know, the the body ideals might be slightly different for men than they are for women, but they're nevertheless extremely oppressive. And so people of all genders are really struggling with disordered eating behaviors
0: you know yeah because even thinking I mean I went to an all-girls school so when you said 75% there I was like oh hon, I mean <laughs> I, I was like I can think of much higher which mm-hmm. is a really sad statement to make but it, interesting that you brought in the gender thing as well because um you know me and Connor doing our own podcast having the female and male experience to us is really important because you know obviously women or cisgender women you know tend to have like their kind of talked a bit more in this area Mm -hmm. but men aren't um or cisgender men aren't or transgender people as well um yeah i just i can think of a few gym bros as well who might uh, Mm -hmm. kind of fall under that category well
1: that's something grace that i kind of was thinking about as well for to ask christy like i mean it sounds like you could be um involved in some sort of disordered eating pattern Um, but still functioning and still getting the results of maybe, you know, fitting into certain clothes or looking a certain way. So there could there be a lot of people out there who are, you know, thinking, oh, well, I'm, you know, really into fitness or having a really clean kind of diet, but actually it's at this kind of cost of being caught in a disordered eating cycle. Would that be a fair assessment?
2: Absolutely. I think that's a really good assessment. Because yeah, I think, you know, our society, diet culture, right, praises people for disordered behaviors, which is Mm -hmm. extremely harmful and and really unfortunate, you know, that people who engage in restriction, over exercise, you know, fasting, bulimia, different, you know, medication abuse, all of these things are, um, you know, sort of, overlooked, right? And I think there's a lot of shame sometimes around them too, depending on the behavior. And so people don't necessarily talk about the dark side of what they're doing, right? They show the restriction. They show the, the sort of, um, you know, because restriction I think is lionized in our culture, right, in diet culture. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, you're, you know, eating in this perfect way. You're eating less, whatever. People don't necessarily show the flip side of that, which is like the night, you know, late night binges or mm-hmm. feeling out of control with food or having, you know, going off the diet in sort of a really big way, right? Um, but so, you know, they're sort of showing this, Uh, veneer of like being quote unquote good by diet culture standards and being restrictive and you know having the body that sort of shows results right the body that you know the before and after pictures and um, having a body that people are envious of or complimentary of and that's so harmful because it so reinforces those toxic behaviors that might have gotten the person there in the first place.
1: And then there's probably a fear to break out of those cycles as well if you are saying, oh, well, I have the body, you know, this this desirable body, um, but now I'm aware of diet culture. uh, If I stop doing what I'm doing, do I then lose my results? You know, do I then, you know, I, I no longer have this quote unquote desirable body?
2: Right. And sort of everything that goes along with that too, right? It's like, you know, there's the, the superficial level of just like desirability and sort of wanting mm-hmm. to look like what we're told we should look like. But then it's like at a deeper level, why is that there, right? It's because mm-hmm. we're told that that's the key to success, to love, to respect, to acceptance, to happiness, all of these things that of course we want. Of course, you know, human beings are all sort of Uh, geared towards wanting, right? We all want respect. We all want acceptance. We all want love. And so when that threatens to be taken away, when the thing that we think is bringing us those things, and in some cases, you know, actually is right when it comes to like someone in a larger body who is getting lots of praise and acceptance and maybe dating or having, you know, friendships that they wouldn't have had because they look a certain way. Yeah. And then they they feel they're about to lose that, right, or giving up the restrictive dieting or the disordered behaviors, you know, really restrictive dieting falls under that. But, you know, giving up the disordered behaviors that might have produced weight loss feels like such a huge risk because it does feel like you might lose everything. And of course, you know, true friends, true loved ones are going to stick with you no matter what, but there's, you know, oftentimes also weight stigma in there, even when it comes to like microaggressions, right? You know, just sort of subtle offhanded comments from people um, about your body, about how it looks, or even just the withholding of compliments, right? The sort of uh, overwhelming silence that is in the place of what used to be gushing effusive praise, you know? Yep.
1: It's such a minefield because we have so many questions and they all kind of overlap, don't they, Grace? Are you feeling that as (laughs) well, that like, you know, you could really come at it from so many angles. But just while we're kind of on the topic and this is kind of my burning question. And then, Grace, if you want to ask something after that, that, Mm -hmm. that's cool. But like, is it okay to be anti-diet, like anti-diet conscious and conscious of diet culture and still want to lose weight? And I'm kind of coming at it from, I suppose my own perspective and maybe the perspective of, you know, people who grew up in a larger body and were, you know, insulted for it, made feel less than, you know, uh, made feel unaccepted, unloved for whatever, re- for, for those reasons. Then when you get older, is it okay then to be like, well, I want to lose weight. I want to see a smaller number on the weighing scales.
2: I mean, it's completely understandable. You know, I think it's, I think it would be almost weird if you didn't want to lose weight in response to that stuff, right? Like yeah. it's so, it's so understandable. It's such a human thing, like to want to belong, to want to escape the stigma. And, you know, we're told that the way to escape the stigma is to lose weight, right? We're never told that the way to escape the stigma is to stop other people from stigmatizing us, you know, to, yeah. to, sure. yeah. to stop the source of the stigma to fight I'm the problem. stigma, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: Blame the victim, Connor, yeah. that's what I always say. Yeah. <laughs> yep.
2: Exactly. So, yeah, I think it's it's completely understandable. And I think, you know, everyone I know in the anti-diet movement has some degree of, you know, ambivalent relationship with um, the idea of weight loss, I think, or how how their body looks, especially folks at the higher end of the, the weight spectrum. You know, I think it's – you can see like even, you know, really well-known anti-diet activists are like, you know, able to see how their life is so much better and how – how much diet culture stole from them and how much mm-hmm. they regained and reclaimed and healing their relationships with food and their bodies. And yet still, you know, there are moments when they're just like, oh, if I could just lose weight, it would be easier. Right. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, "Ugh, I'm feeling the stigma. And how nice would it be to just sort of snap my fingers and escape it? And weight loss is the way that we're taught we can do that. Um, and so, you know, and I think it it's worth saying that weight stigma, of course, affects people at the higher end of the weight spectrum more. It's like as you go up the BMI chart, it's the weight stigma that people face gets more and more intense. Yeah. But weight stigma also affects people all across the BMI spectrum. It's kind of a, a universal thing in this culture in terms of internalized weight stigma, you know, that people all across the BMI spectrum might think that they're too large or might've had experiences of, um, someone shaming them for the size and shape of their body. And that really sticks with us, you know? And so I think it's, it's totally understandable. And I, you know, calling the book anti-diet, I think makes it sound very black and white in some ways. And I think it's a grabby title for that. And it's also important for me to like take a stand and say I stand against diet culture and I think it's the the reality is more shades of gray right that you can be against diet culture and sort of understand the problems and you know stand against it sort of politically but then personally feel a little more conflicted
0: you know it's, it's really interesting because I'm, I'm thinking of a, a quote from your book and um, now i'm gonna i to probably butcher it here but, but i'll give my best and um, if you were able to climb the stairs without getting winded and stop having knee pain without losing a single pound of weight would you be okay with that and that was a really interesting one for me because it made me think so much of the uh, quote unquote obesity epidemic. And when people say mention things about people being in larger bodies, they always say it's for your health, it's for your health. But if you were to say that to someone <laughs> without losing a pound and I took away all your ailments, would you be OK with that? Actually, I think I don't Maybe I'm speaking for too many people, but I don't think a lot of people would be OK with that mm. because it's the aesthetic that has the diet culture has drilled into us, not the health. When people say. When people particularly are being vicious about larger body people on television or whatever, in what way they're doing it, they say it's for health. But I I always think, oh, no, you're just doing it for an aesthetic. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because if you were to say that quote to them, they wouldn't go with it. But I suppose my question after that is for a listener at how who maybe hasn't, you know, read your book, you know, they might say, OK, well, what about the health? you know what about the obesity epidemic what about the health of larger people and i suppose I, I your take on it was really really interesting to me um and the first time i'd ever heard someone kind of speak as plainly in the book
2: mm yeah thank you that's that's good to know you know so yeah my my take on you know the health piece is really that there are things that get blamed on weight itself without question, right? It's like mm-hmm. higher weight causes heart attacks, higher weight causes, you know, diabetes, higher weight causes people to keel over and die early. There are all these sort of myths that have been propagated in our culture for the last, you know, 50 to 100 years. Um, that Interestingly, if you look at the history of diet culture too, it's like these sort of negative beliefs about body size fat phobic beliefs or fat hating you know anti-fat beliefs um, preceded the health beliefs preceded any you know so-called science connecting higher weight to um, worse health outcomes and so that really shows that that you know it's the the fat stigma that's actually at the heart of all this and sort of the health justifications came later um, but, you know, we see see these things getting connected, right, as though higher weight was the cause of all these health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's a lot of really interesting research, and, you know, I go through it at length in the book. But, yeah, um,
0: amazing, yeah. yeah Read re- the book for that.
2: <laughs> right, if you want all the citations, you know. <laughs> um, but showing that, you know, higher weight – is of course associated with more weight stigma and mm-hmm. also with higher rates of weight cycling which are the repeated cycles of weight loss and regain commonly mm-hmm. known as yo-yo dieting that up to 98% of dieters actually go through because diets really don't work weight mm-hmm. and that's you know not just diets quote unquote but actually any intentional weight loss effort whatever it calls itself is more likely to fail than not is you know up to 98% of the time people are going to at least regain all the weight that they lost. And then in up to two-thirds of those cases, it's actually going to be they're going to gain back more than they lost, right? And so, you know, because of that, right, weight cycling is this extremely common phenomenon, especially for people in larger bodies who are more likely to have tried to lose weight because they were told they should, right? They were told that it was, you know, for their health or they wanted to achieve the aesthetic and sort of all of the acceptance and stuff that comes along with that. And so what we really see in that research is that weight stigma and weight cycling are independent health risks for the things that get blamed on higher weight, right? So independent of body size, regardless of what someone weighs, the more they've weight cycled and the more weight stigma they've experienced, the higher their risks of diabetes, heart disease, mortality, some forms of cancer, the list goes on, right? So, you know, I think blaming higher weight for poor health outcomes really misses this uh, missing link, this thing, you know, this sort of mediating factor, which is weight stigma and weight cycling. And yeah. I argue in the book, it's really not so much the weight itself. In fact, it might not be not even be the weight itself at all, but the weight stigma and the weight cycling, the disordered eating as well, um, the other sort of mental health impacts that, being in a, in a larger body in this weight stigmatizing culture can have on people.
0: Yeah, because one one thing you mentioned in the book, you know, when uh, it was said that um, cervical cancer is higher in uh, larger bodied women or, or fat women. Mm-hmm. Um, but you make the point that actually it's rather the cause that uh, fat people or larger bodied people tend to wait to go to the doctor a longer time, because if they go to the doctor, the doctor's just going to say, you know, for most of their symptoms, lose weight. Mm -hmm. So they know the weight stigma they're going to face. And so it takes them longer. They wait longer periods to go to the doctor because they don't want to face that stigma and then are further along in any sort of diagnosis they might get. You know, and I just thought that was a really interesting uh, case you brought up in the book. Yeah,
2: totally. And now also like doctors are actually less likely to give fat patients pap smears, which is just bananas, you know? And I think that's true. You know, we see that in the research for lots of different conditions as well. Doctors are less likely to give the appropriate um, diagnostic tests or treatments and more likely to just say, oh, go go lose weight. This is because of your weight. Mm -hmm. I talk in the book about a case of a woman, sort of a high profile media case of a uh, young woman who was uh, had shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, coughing, and stuff for years. And she kept going to the doctor, and the doctor was like, oh, you have to lose weight. You know, this is because of your weight. You're out of breath because you're heavy. Just, you know, lose weight and everything will be fine. And it persisted and persisted despite her efforts to lose weight. And so she finally ended up getting a diagnosis of lung cancer that had taken an entire lung, you know, that would have been, her surgeon yeah. said, um, she could have they could have saved her lung if she had gotten diagnosed five years
1: earlier. And it's so frustrating as well, because you're tell as a doctor, you're telling someone who has this breathing problem to go lose weight. What do people do to lose weight? They go on some intense exercise regime yeah. that's no pain, no gain, keep pushing, push through mm-hmm. the discomfort, all that sort of stuff. And little do you know that you're actually exacerbating this underlying condition. And it's it's such a worrying thing. Um, yeah. One of the things I have to say, Christy, like like hearing you talk, it's really making me kind of re-experience the Audible uh, book that I listened to when I listened to <laughs> yeah. Andy first. And it's just so great to kind of hear you talk about it, like obviously to us, but like some of the um, terms in it just resonated so much and were just such aha moments for me. And I know they were for Grace and for probably everyone who reads it, but like two in particular, the weight cycling and the life thief, like yeah. those two Uh, terms combined could basically just sum up the past like 10 years of my life you know (laughs) and it's just such a refreshing thing to to see them named and acknowledged and essentially called out
2: Mm. thank you i'm so glad that that was helpful You know, I think, yeah, the life thief we haven't really even touched on yet, but I think that to me also sums up so much of what goes on in diet culture, which is that, you know, it steals our time, our money, our well-being, our happiness, mental energy, like space to be thinking about other things and devoting to other things. And, um, you know, the sort of the ways in which diet culture does that are so sneaky because Mm -hmm. now we have you know, diet culture posing as wellness, what I call the wellness yes. diet. And so kind of taking away our time and our money and our well-being in new ways and, you know, sneakier ways because it's it's pretending to not just be about the aesthetic, but about health and well-being.
0: You know, particularly with wellness, um, I found it so interesting when you entered that because we're really in that sort of frame of mind, the clean eating, the yeah. mm-hmm. avocados coming out your ears. So <laughs> I want to, <laughs> to ask, what has the fitness and like sort of diet you know industry's reaction to your book been and mm-hmm. i and i would like to even know particularly that kind of like wellness you know community what's mm-hmm. their reaction have you found to this kind of you know the the facts and arguments you're putting forward
2: yeah i mean the people that i have talked to or sort of had some contact with from the wellness field who've read it have felt really like Okay, this is mind-blowing. This is something I need to, you know, really take into consideration and think about and um I think it's provoked a lot of soul searching in people who are sort of prone to that, I guess, or people, yes. you know, people who have that sort of level of self-reflection and nuance um which is great, you know, and I've had I've made some connections with people that I probably wouldn't have before because of their reading of the book and sort of resonating with that unpacking of the idea of wellness, I'm thinking of a couple like French or French Canadian nutritionists who I just was on their podcast recently. And, you know, they had been very much in that sort of wellness diet space before. And they said that Mm -hmm. the book just completely like, you know, Boulevard. I'm using the French I'm like thinking in French now because I'm thinking about we had a conversation in French but you know that it totally like kind of turned them around um,
0: yeah humble so, brag that you speak French amazing. I know I know sorry <laughs> we're,
2: we're it's always I'm like I feel so weird about yeah. being like I don't know, what's the word in English like
0: <laughs> oh no say it in French love it yeah,
2: yeah no it's it's funny to try to speak another language after like 20 years of not really using it very much I'm like have to study and practice again um but yeah, so, you know, thinking about that, it's it's really nice to sort of see it resonating with people in that wellness space yeah. who are receptive. But then there's also definitely been, you know, some backlash from mm. certain corners of that wellness space that I think just aren't ready for it, you know. And that's yeah. to be expected. I sort of knew that was coming. But, you know, definitely the sort of gym bro types and mm. um, people who are really, you know, into like fitness and clean eating and all the diety stuff around that yeah. I think are you know who are just in it of course it's understandable to feel like something that's challenging their entire worldview is just yeah. like a bunch of garbage you know
0: but I think it's because you're using it's provocative to them that you use the word diet mm-hmm. when it comes to clean eating because this yeah. is the thing that the clean eating lifestyle people right. have been pushing forward is that they're like, it's not a diet. I mean, yes, you'll be hungry. But <laughs> it's not a diet. And I think that's why it probably does provoke a reaction. Because if you were to go into a gym to a lot of people who, you know, it, it really is. If you're in the mind frame, obviously, as you're talking to us we where you're constantly thinking about food, which a lot of, you know, clean eating people, like no offense, but more bored than not having conversations with them because it's constantly about food, then That is a diet and it's so interesting because it's just repackaged to something else.
2: Right, I know it's not a diet; it's a lifestyle, it's a yeah. protocol, it's a plan, it's a template, it's a reboot, it's a reset. Like there's so many words for it, yeah. and they
1: every boring is what it is. Every yeah. health, every uh, health and wellness, fitness, diet book, whatever that starts with. Okay, this isn't a diet. Just so you know, right. this is not a diet. But here's the diet: all protein, no carbs. Go. You know, it's um,
0: like when someone comes up and goes, "Here, listen, I'm a good person, right? Before you yeah, start but, about, You're not a good person." <laughs> Uh, totally. christy
1: um i know that you help a lot of people you you work with a lot of people as uh you know an intuitive eating um dietitian uh what are some of the most common fad diets that people come to you and, to, and as a part two of that question do you find that you see um different elements of diet culture having a gender bias
2: mm, yeah i think definitely it does sort of break down in some ways along gender lines so like I think for the cis male clients I see and even some trans male clients too, there's like a lot more emphasis on like you know, biohacking, right, and, like, Mm. you know, protein and um, intermittent fasting and these sort of weird, like, protocols where the aesthetic is just very, like, gym bro, you know. Mm -hmm. It's this sort of stark – it's interesting to sort of try to think about the different aesthetics between, like, that, which I'm sort of – I'm writing my second book right now about wellness, actually, called Rethinking Wellness and sort of trying to understand the different, like – corners of, of wellness culture and sort of how they appeal to different types of people. And I think that, you know, that sort of um, gym bro type is maybe like the the hard edges or like the, you know, the the shell around wellness culture. And then sort of the crunchy center is like, you know, the, the sort of pastels and pinks and white space, lots of white space and lots of, you know, sort of plants and like crunchy hippie types of things right you know that's yeah that's more the feminine side maybe and the the side that i see definitely with a lot more of my women clients you know both cis and trans is really like or you know non-binary people too i think can sometimes get seduced into into both of those camps and Mm. obviously there's some gender crossover but you know the feminized version the version that is sold to women is like much more, like, clean, pure, yeah. natural, you know, low Cleanses. on the food chain, yeah, yeah. unprocessed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and ugh, it's also, I mean, a lot of, the like, you know, one of the main fad diets I see kind of from that side is, like, Whole30. I see nice. quite a few people coming in who are doing Whole30 or maybe Noom, too, which, which I think is sort yeah. of a... You know, it's it's in that general aesthetic side of things, I guess. It's more of the crunchy, but it's also got the, um, you know, this is science, quote-unquote. Like, you're doing – psychology tells us that you need to track yeah. your calories and only eat foods on the green list and blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, it's just another diet. It's basically Weight Watchers repackaged. Um, but it's – and Weight Watchers is another one I see a lot of people yeah. on, by the way. Um, but, yeah, it's it's all just – They're all just diets and they bend over backwards and turn themselves into pretzels to try to say they're not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, as you said, you know what I find really funny when you brought up the unprocessed food there, because I've really distinctly in my head in your book when you mentioned that, like, when people are so, uh, you know, anti any kind of chemical in their food and you're like, our bodies are full of chemicals. (laughs) They're literally
2: 100 percent chemicals. That's all we are. That's all anything is, is chemicals. It's yeah. just, you know, there's certain kinds of chemicals that get talked about and certain kinds that are, you know, it's like, oh, oxygen, that's a chemical. Like, <laughs> so maybe re- we can
0: relax about chemicals, yeah. you know. I mean, if I do see like a wellness person being like, get rid of the oxygen in your body, I'll be like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oxygen diet.
0: That's a different oh type God. of diet where I don't want to lose my life. Or-
1: right. How do you deal with uh, friends and family members com- complimenting you? on your weight I mean because there's always Mm going to be comments but when it leans into towards the kind of quote-unquote positive side of things like what's the best way to deal with that do you think
2: yeah, it's, it's a really tricky thing. I think it depends on the situation, on the person, how close you are, you know, what your bandwidth is for the day, for having deep conversations or getting into, you know, tricky territory or whatever. So I think there's different things you can do. You know, I know you're both comedians, right? So there, you know, there's ways to sort of be humorous and light about it, I think, um, where you can, you know, say like, oh, I haven't noticed or, um, mm. you know, I don't know, sort of turning it into like a, a dancing away kind of joke where you're just like, let's, let's move on. Let's, you know, change the subject. You can change the subject. You can, you know, for people you don't want to really get into it with. I think there's lots of subtle ways to just kind of redirect and be like, anyway, you know, moving on. Um, But then I think when it comes to someone that you actually are closer with, where you think it's going to be, something that comes up again maybe or where you want to make a stand for whatever reason, I think that you can kind of say, you know, actually like thank you for um, complimenting me. Like I understand you want to like make me feel good and I really appreciate that. And you know, this kind of compliment about someone's body size, especially your body shape or how your body looks um, can be really damaging and has been really damaging to me in the past because, I've really struggled in my relationship with food and, you know, had some really disordered moments with food that were spurred on by thinking that I needed to look a certain way and by sort of positive reinforcement that I got from people in my life, um, making me feel like I looked better and everything was better because I was thinner and I was actually doing some really disordered things that harmed me to try to achieve that. So, you know, I'm trying to move away from you know, compliments about bodies and um, and you know, sort of recognizing the harm that that's caused, and maybe trying to focus more on complimenting people's personalities and you know things about them that have nothing to do with how they look or the size and shape of their bodies.
0: Yeah. And as I said, like the last thing someone's going to mention like, when they're doing a eulogy at your funeral is like she kept it tight. <laughs> no, be like she was a great crack.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one's doing that. Like yeah, so kind of redirecting to like the deeper stuff, I think is. Yeah.
1: It's such amazing advice and such amazing advice on all the topics. I think me and Grace would love to just take you around with us and you can just like <laughs> yeah. help uh, deal with all of our friends and family. Uh, who We deal. love very much, by the way, I should say. Yeah. Um, but so for, then, their bodies. Only yeah, for their well, bodies. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> what else? Grace? What else? Come on. Only
0: for how they look. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so, Christy, if someone is listening to this interview and they feel like they're caught up in diet culture in some way and they want to break away from it what would you recommend to them would be their kind of first step, do you think?
2: Yeah, I think it's, I think the first step is that sort of acknowledgement and awareness. And just, you know, I think people can sometimes feel really overwhelmed when they recognize they're caught up in diet culture and feel like, oh my God, I have to, you know, somebody's asking me to give this up overnight and I don't want to, and I'm not ready. So there can be this sort of defensiveness sometimes that develops. Mm -hmm. So I think just sort of reassuring yourself and knowing like you don't have to do anything with this information right now. You can like sit with it. You can sort of, consider different aspects of how you might be caught up in diet culture can be helpful to journal, you know, to sort of recognize like what are the food rules that I'm unconsciously following or um, what are the beliefs that I've internalized from various different diets that I maybe don't even remember are from a diet, you know, and maybe it's a diet I did 10 or 20 years ago, but it's something that's still stuck in my head that I'm unconsciously following that might be making me, you know, feel worse than I need to feel, right? Feel more mentally kind of restricted and upset about food than I need to feel or physically restricted. And so kind of, you know, looking at it through that lens of how can I, how am I maybe limiting myself? How am I holding on to these diet culture beliefs and what of them feels harmful? What of them feels like something I'm ready to let go of? You know, you don't have to let it, let it all go now, right? But just, looking at it from a place of self-compassion, having compassion for yourself for having fallen into this and just taking stock of, you know, what's going on for you. And that can be a process of, you know, weeks, months, years that you kind of sit with that and just acknowledge the aspects of the diet mentality that you've really internalized. And then I think from there, you can start to um, reject certain parts, you know, build that sort of awareness and, Uh, acknowledgement that certain things are harming you and that you don't want to do them anymore and take the steps to do that. Right. And so when that's happening, I think letting go of things one at a time, sitting with it, processing it, not feeling like you're doing all or nothing black and white, because that usually results in a backlash. You know, if you're like, I'm done, I'm out, which of course (laughs) that energy is understandable. And sometimes Mm -hmm. people do that with with success but I think more often than not that feeling of like mic drop I'm out of here you'll never see me again (laughs) you know it's like that maybe isn't so realistic you know yeah and so letting yourself have that space to just do things slowly in your time you know on your on your pace so that you're not going to be sort of ping-ponging back and forth
0: yeah I everything you said there is so so unbelievably true Christy because like obviously we're steeped in this diet culture we've grown up in it so to in in a way unlearn the toxic things we have learned it's going to take a long time Mm -hmm. and we just wanted to end with this uh chrissy because one of my favorite parts of your book um being the crude person I am, is when you talk at times of when you might even be in the negative headspace of die culture, and you say to yourself out loud, "Fuck you, die culture." Now, so to end the show, me and Connor are going to say that out loud. Now, obviously, Chris, you don't have to um, join in if you don't want to. No problem. Oh, I will. But all of the listeners. Oh, great. <laughs> we this were wasn't agreed
1: beforehand. Sorry, actually. <laughs>
0: christy's like this this wasn't what i said yesterday. no, no. Um, but for all of the listeners at home we'd love for you to say this out loud as well um preferably obviously if you're not around kids maybe just say it under your breath
2: mm-hmm.
1: i'd say go ahead and say in front of the kids i'd say go ahead and say <laughs> it in front of the kids
2: yeah everybody's <laughs> got their parenting styles right
0: you know they yeah, have I'd- to learn If for some reason you're listening to this podcast in mass, maybe don't say it there. I don't know. Okay. Again, again,
1: I disagree. I just say it, say it in mass.
0: (laughs) Say it for the Lord to hear. Okay, so on three, we're all going to say it. One, two, three.
2: Fuck Fuck you, you, diet
0: culture. culture. that was seamless that was <laughs> liberating that was
1: so liberating
0: I was I've, awesome. been, I've been saying it all day which I think <laughs> is really funny <laughs> I just suddenly shouted out fuck you diet culture our notes
1: um, our notes for this interview were just a whole page of fuck you diet culture it really hard to it looks through. like
0: it's like the shining where we start writing on the wall okay well listen we're just gonna thank you so much again Chris, for you so taking much. the time for this interview mm, really appreciate, appreciate it um, to our listeners, Christy's book, again, is called The Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Um, you can find more of her great work on our website, christyharrison.com, or you can listen to her brilliant podcast, Food Psych, a weekly show dedicated to helping you make peace with food and break free from diet culture. Again, thank you so much, Christy Harrison.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks so much, Christy. And we can't wait to read your new book. And hopefully get you back on the show to talk about it when the time comes yes oh i love that she agreed uh, grace she agreed (laughs) (laughs)
2: it'll have it
0: on tape two years from
2: now so we got a while to wait but traditional publishing is a
0: very slow uh animal thanks for listening to this episode of fad camp as always we want to thank our producer darren lee if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: Great ratings and reviews really help more people find the show and it would mean a lot to us.
0: Make sure to share the episodes with friends and family or on your social media. Every listen helps.
1: And we absolutely love hearing from our listeners. So please get in touch with any of your diet stories on podcast at gmail.com.